Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations about legal news topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of TAF Law, and today we are doing something new, something we've never done before. If our average podcast is unscripted, today is really, really unscripted. We're doing a mailbag episode. So instead of having a guest on, we have three co-hosts, two of whom you'll be familiar with. The other one's a newbie who will be part of the regular rotation. Jen Byrne of the CBA, Trish Rich of Holland and Knight, and Maggie Mendenhall-Casey of the City of Chicago Corporation Counsel's Office. Ladies, hi. Hi. Hey, John. How's it going? We're ready. We're excited. All right. None of us have any idea what we're doing today, so let's just plow right into it. The idea is to uh, start with some of the questions that our audience members have had for us over you know, the course of the last two seasons. Jen, you look like you're rearing to go. I'm ready, guys. Before we went on air today, I was showing, I was showing my co-host over Zoom. I've got two pages of type notes. I've got letters from you guys in the audience. Um, I've got headlines, everything we're going to be talking about today. So I'll start with the first one. What, as I say this now from my office, my physical office, downtown Chicago at the CBA, for the first time in like two and a half years, what are your predictions for the post-pandemic world? What is the law firm culture going to look like? Um, I mean, of course, assuming this is actually post-pandemic, but like, what are your predictions? That's the question. Go. Uh, I have one. Um, I predict that I will be hosting the CBA's first annual Ethics Day seminar oh my in God, person skip on May hard. 18th. Let's remove that and post that. It. Maggie, what do you think? <laughs> oh, wow. No. And all seriousness, before you go, Maggie, I, I think we're going to be back to in-person bar events regularly very soon. John pushed the, a quick deny button. My predictions are, I think that unfortunately we're not going to be traveling for depositions anymore. I think we are on Zoom, so there's going to be no more expensing to go to Florida uh, to take that expert deposition. Um, it'll be via Zoom, trials in person, and everything else like depositions is more convenient. It's going to remain on Zoom. Jen? I mean, do you really think, Trish, that we're going to be doing in-person bar events, though? I mean, like, let's think about this. Look, I'm the first person to advocate that we should be doing them, seeing as this is my employer. And I feel like there's a lot that you can get out of doing in-person events. And I think there's a place for it, certainly. Like, there's an appetite for people to get back together. Things have changed. But as I'm talking to different lawyers and, you know, I'm on phone calls, touching base on Zooms and whatever, people are saying we're in the office two days a week. We're in the office one day a week. And I'm trying to wrap my head around, like, how frequently is everybody going to be in the same place at the same time and feel like it is convenient for them and worthwhile to actually come over to the Bar Association building or even like get together at a bar when, you know, people have these hybrid schedules and everybody's busy and, you know, trying to bill their time. Does do you guys have any thoughts? Yeah. So one thing that's really interesting is it looks like we're going to go back to work where in a situation where most midsize and large law firms and a whole lot of small law firms are going to adapt hybrid working schedules. And it seems like the one that I've sort of heard most often is either a three days in the office, two days from home or the reverse of that. Right. And so it is it, it is going to be a challenge for us at the bar to plan around events like that. I mean, does it mean 
mean that we should probably tend to have them on Thursdays instead of Fridays, because maybe most people will opt to work from home on Fridays. But I think there is a real thirst for humor in our action. I think people really miss seeing each other. I have to figure out, you know, it's uh, at least several of you on this on this Zoom know I am a hugger and I need to figure out how to not be a hugger on the other side of this, because I think people are still going to be a little bit leery of physical interactions. But I think people really miss interacting in person. So it'll be something we'll have to figure out. The distinction I would make is I think it'll be different between lunchtime meetings and evening meetings. I think if you're trying to do something during the lunchtime, most likely that should remain on Zoom. Um, And if it's a meeting in the evening, I think that that'll be a little bit easier to get people to come downtown to, to be able to plan around. And I think when you start doing in-person a little bit more needs to be put into it to incentivize people to come down to your event, to spend the time to come when they wouldn't necessarily be in the loop. A related question as we kind of shift away from talking about like bar events and more towards the practice of law and like what you guys are seeing with clients, what are you seeing in court? We had a couple questions here come in about like, what kinds of changes are you seeing on those fronts? Like, do your clients want to meet you in the office? What are the judges doing? Are you having to go to court as much as previously? Do you think that's going to change? Like, what are you guys thinking and seeing down the pike with that? John. John I mean, I, I think... John doesn't go to court. <laughs> I, that's right. I mean, I think my practice is a little bit different since I'm an appellate lawyer and I'm, you know, I'm only in court maybe once a month. My clients so far have been perfectly happy to meet over the telephone and Zoom because they always have been, period, you know, even before the pandemic. I don't see any of that changing. I am glad that appellate arguments are starting to go back to courtrooms because I think there's nothing quite like that. You know, you, I didn't become an appellate lawyer to argue in front of a computer. I want to be at the podium. I want to be gripping the sides of that podium. You know, it gets your heart beat up and you're really at your best when you're literally on your feet. So, you know, going back to Maggie's earlier point, I, I think at least that part of the practice of law will return to normal. The statuses and the case management conferences and things like that, I think that's going to be done over Zoom, you know, much to the chagrin of all the lawyers who bill hourly, who used to be able to bill uh, an hour for a five-minute status appearance. Yeah, I agree with John, especially, I mean, I know we have listeners from all over, but especially in the Daily Center, it seems like one of the things we'll see is routine statuses will move to Zoom, but more important hearings and trials and those sorts of things will start being in person. And I, in fact, have a jury trial starting two weeks from the day we're recording this in person in the Daily Center. So I think those are going to, or if they're not already back, we'll be totally back full speed pretty soon. To the client portion, um, I'll pipe in here with my experience. So I do personal injury defense um, and represent a number of city of Chicago employees. And for what's going to be different for me is that really having the choice in terms of what my clients like, it makes it easier for them. So a number of my clients aren't necessarily Zoom fluent. And if there's a deposition, I'll bring them into my office and put them in a conference room and they'll get on Zoom. On the other hand, I have clients where I can prep them via Zoom. I can have them review discovery via Zoom, and it's a lot easier for them versus having to come downtown to the court counsel's office. So I think that flexibility is going to remain. One of the issues, and not to nerd out too much on this question, but 
one of the issues that occurred to me the other day is I asked for a page extension from a trial court on a post-trial motion, and I just did it via an email, and it was granted via email. In the past, we used to have to do that via formal motion. And it occurred to me, what's going to happen when there's a dispute about what actually happened in the trial court in terms of orders and you know, even routine things like this, and how do those emails make it into the record? I think that's going to be kind of a, a brave new frontier for both trial lawyers trying to keep in mind preservation issues and appellate lawyers dealing with them. But let's go on to another question. Maggie, what did you pull from the mailbag? <laughs> the question I pulled from the mailbag is for the OGs that are on the line. What has been your favorite guest or interview in your time doing the podcast? Trish? Your eyebrows just shot up. What do you think? Yeah, I've had a lot. Um, so my good friend and good friend of the pod, Dan Cotter's episode on the book that he wrote, I thought was really a good one. But also one that really stands out to me is when we interviewed Bill Kunkel, the guy that prosecuted John Wayne Gacy. Um that was a really cool episode because of what we aired, but also because of all the things he told us off air about the case and the searching the house and all sorts of really interesting things. That was a really interesting episode. John, what's your favorite? You know, I've been liking them more and more as we go. The last three that we've done, I think, are probably three of our best. The interview with Dan Webb about the Jesse Smollett trial, the interview with Amanda Knox, and then the interview about the... Um, the Family Secrets trial with Marcus yeah. Funk, I think. I mean, we may be getting better. I also really like the one with Rob Balot about uh, Dark Waters and the DuPont poisoning yeah, cases because that's, that's in the news a lot. Even now I see that in the news daily. Jen, you're the producer. What do you think? I'm the one to ask for this question. I base all of my preferences on ratings um, and numbers. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but if if we are going to go off of that, our highest rated episode is the Bill Kunkel, John Wayne Gacy episode, which, I mean, I think is a favorite for a number of reasons. Number one, I feel like that was a really exciting get for us because it was a big case. We knew people were going to want to listen to that because it's a, you know, it's a hot true crime topic and he's a local hometown hero for having tried that case so it was a good get it was a really interesting sit down to hear the behind the scenes and actually as we're doing this mailbag episode I think part of the impetus and inspiration for doing this was sort of like some of the off the record chats we have with the guests and that one was particularly memorable because when we press the stop record button. We got some some good inside takes from the former judge about his handling of the case. So that was a really good one. But I agree with John. I think we're really hitting our stride with some of the more recent episodes because, you know, we're, we're getting some really, really good hot topics and guests. And I would have to say that when I was listening to John and Trish interview Amanda Knox, I was like, wow, you know, like this is a very high quality interview. You guys both knocked it out of the park with the questions you asked, and she was just a pro um, in terms of being PR trained or, you know, just a good speaker in general. So it flowed like butter, as they say, and I thought it was a really, really great interview. And I mean, the ratings for this most recent one um, with Dan Webb talking about the Jesse uh, Smollett case has been off the charts as well, because that's just hot. It's in the news. It's in the news right now as we speak. You could probably Google it and there's an update within the last five minutes. So all good ones. Trish, what did you pull from the mailbag? Um, okay. Uh, 
I have an interesting letter about somebody else's favorite episode. Um, I really enjoyed the live episode you did from Revolution Brewery. Uh, do you have any plans for another live episode in the future? I mean, pandemic allowing. Well, I think we've got to hear from you folks at home, the listeners. Do you want it? Tell us. Send us an email at podcast at chicagobar.org and let us know if you want us to do another live episode. I think everything we talked about at the top of the episode probably is going to be considered if we decide to do that again, right? Like, you know, what's the appetite for it? And are people willing to, you know, spend the extra time traveling to a location that might not be exactly convenient to their office or to their home or wherever to come and do that. But I think that was, it was fun in person. I feel like, um, you really felt the energy of that interview at the time. At least that was my impression. I think that may have been the bear talking. It definitely was. Yeah. Yeah. When I go back and listen to it, I can tell I'm a little tipsy. (laughs) Those are the best talk shows though. It's true. That's true. (laughs) I, I was the Hoda of that show for sure. <laughs> I've always thought of all the like, you know, the the late night talk shows. If you guys have ever seen Graham Norton, he's in the UK and he gets all the, you know, guests that like, you know, Colbert and uh, Fallon get, but he puts a drink in front of him first and the interviews are much more interesting. Huh? I see. Maybe that should be our uh, strategy. Our show is called At the Bar, guys. I mean- <laughs> it's true. We could probably step that up. All right, so let's let's uh, finish up this one with the one I pulled from the bag. I think this is from a regular listener. You can tell. And the question was, can you edit out all of Trisha's references to Michigan? If so, why don't you? <laughs> Jen, what do you think? Is that from my husband? I'm not going to say. <laughs> I, I protect confidentiality. Why are you so anti-Michigan, I'm not anti-Michigan. John? Why are you I'm so not anti-Michigan? anti-Michigan. <laughs> I'm anti-Michigan every day, all day. There are 49 other states, probably 40 of which are worth discussing. Somebody's a little jelly that they didn't grow up in Michigan. People from Michigan are like that, though. I feel like once you become friends with a Michigander, you just accept this into your life as as a part of life. And by having Trish on the show, it's just it's a it's a running narrative. We should have a special Michigan episode. Right. Like, why? Why do all the Michigan people live here? And what does that say? Well, no, that's just not nice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's probably a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. And we're back. So thank you to our listeners for those uh, fun questions from the mailbag, especially the last one. That was just absolute gold. We're going to do something different with the second segment. So we've been toying with this idea of having a second episode every month. And it would just be kind of like a production meeting that we have every month, but off the air. And we would be having this on the air, kicking ideas around, seeing what legal topics are hot and what kind of guests we could get. So we're just going to do that with this second segment. Jen, fearless leader, CBA at the bar producer, take it away. All right, guys. So those of you in the audience who are fans of pop culture may be familiar with the TMZ show. I'm going to think of myself here as the Harvey Levin of the At The Bar podcast. 
and I'm going to try and, you know, get my humble hosts to come up with some ideas so that I can jot them down and start doing the outreach that I do to get people to come on this show. And you guys in the audience, we want you to keep writing in podcast at chicagobar.org with your ideas as well, because that's kind of how we come up with things, right, John? I mean, I feel like the way we (laughs) think up these topics is really we're reading the headlines, we're just chit-chatting with one another, and whatever strikes our fancy is what's on the show. So I'll start off with my recent idea, my, my latest little concept I've been toying around with is the Elizabeth Holmes case. I know we've been wanting to do something on her, but have any of you guys checked out the Hulu documentary? I'm watching it now. Or not the documentary, I'm sorry, the series. Uh, Dropout. Yeah, what do you think about it so far? About halfway through. It seems pretty sympathetic. Yeah, I was going to say, first of all, the fact that they cast Amanda Seyfried to play her, and then I'm also hearing that there's a movie coming out with Jennifer Lawrence, I feel like is very generous to Elizabeth Holmes. All right. Caddy. (laughs) Caddiness aside, if we were going to do an Elizabeth Holmes episode, who would the guest be? Well, I think I've already made outreach, so if he's listening, uh, John Carrierow, I think is how you pronounce his name, actually wrote, well, he was basically not the whistleblower, but the first journalist to take on the story. But he wound up publishing the book, which I believe the Jennifer Lawrence movie is based on, called Bad Blood. And I think he would be an excellent guest to get. So I've already made a couple inquiries to him have not yet heard back. So if he's listening, please respond, sir. Um, But, you know, there's other possibilities too. The show, the Hulu show, is based on the podcast called The Dropout that I believe was executive produced and perhaps hosted, I haven't listened to it yet, by Rebecca Jarvis. So she would be a Mm -hmm. great guest. You know, I didn't really follow the case in real time. I, you know, was peripherally aware of it and I was aware of her and then I... Decided to watch the HBO documentary. Has anyone watched that? Not yet. I haven't. That was, it was good. It was a good laying the groundwork for understanding, you know, what happened with her. And I feel like if you're going to watch the Hulu series, you should watch the HBO doc first, which I think is why I get to my, my catty thought process on the actresses who were chosen, because I generally find them both to be quite likable and, that is the opposite of how I find Elizabeth Holmes after watching the documentary. Because she's actually extensively featured in the documentary on HBO. And she sucks. And I feel like <laughs> both of those yeah, women yeah. Maybe, um, Maybe the are... documentary filmmakers would be a good guess, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they would be, too. I totally agree with you. I think I find Jennifer Lawrence to be adorable and Elizabeth Holmes to be a monster, right? I do want to make the point, though, there's no doubt that, you know, sexism pervades every inch of, you know, our society, right? So I am sure Elizabeth Holmes is being treated differently than men in her position might be treated. It does not mean that she is not an absolute terrible monster who deserves to sit in prison for the rest of her life. You know, I'm, I'm amazed this is actually what our production meetings sound like. This is incredibly accurate, <laughs> including like the complete lack of efficiency in discussion topics. Maggie. I think the next mailbag will like, please, God, never do one right. of those again. <laughs> Save our ears, please. Maggie, talk to me about uh, a topic I have for a future episode. 
Sure. So I've been watching the Lulu Row uh, documentary um, called Lulu Rich. Uh, it's about multi-level marketing with a leggings and skirt company for episode documentary on Amazon Prime. And it's an interesting mix of a number of issues like stay-at-home moms and how they're, they're yearning to have this business, um, multi-level marketing, Mormonism. There are um, some brief appearances from uh, Katy Perry and Kelly Clarkson concerts. So specifically to the legal aspect of it, there is a attorney who represented one of the victims of the multi-level marketing scheme who's actively featured on the documentary. So if they're willing to talk on the documentary, they might be willing to speak with us. So there are a number of lawsuits that have been brought against this company, including the Washington AG's office, um, Washington the state, that settled out of court, but they're still operating. So that seemed like it would be an interesting topic to me. That could definitely be a good one and a good guest too. I wonder, would that be a one guest episode or a two guest episode? Because we might be able to get like a, a prosecutor who's handled a big case against a multi-level marketing company to kind of explain the legal framework or the regulatory framework. I would be so interested to hear from a prosecutor on that because I don't know a lot about these MLM schemes, but a lot of people I'm friends with on Facebook are trying to sell me like, you know, skincare yeah. and widgets and all sorts of things. They seem to think I have more free time than I have. <laughs> we know you're very busy and important, Trish. Our entire audience knows that too. <laughs> <I'm just saying. laughs> I do not need another hobby. I just Trish, need another four hours in a day. <laughs> Trish, you don't have time to sell leggings? Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> I, uh, Jen, can I have a booth at the CBA in the lobby to sell some leggings? <laughs> yeah, you know what always baffled me? Yeah, yes, please do. I need leggings. Now that I'm working in the office, I'm going to be halfway through the day. I'm going to be able to, you know, like, I'm going to have like a crisis of having to wear actual pants and I'll need your booth downstairs. But I, d I never understood the LuLaRoe thing because, like, what's with the crazy prints? It's like there's, like, elephant prints on them. And, like, how did that get started? The craze? I'm okay, I'm going to alienate, like, 90% of our audience. Don't you think that's for, like, suburban America? Isn't that what they like to wear? Ooh. Throwing down. <laughs> I moved to the suburbs a year ago, Trish, so I take this as an affront to me. <laughs> All I will say is if you watch the documentary, you'll see the, the people that are featured on it, and that, that will answer your question. <laughs> um, but, Jim, but, but Jim, with the prints, they talked about that. One, there's also some interesting like copyright tie-in or maybe trademark or maybe patent. I do IP or PI, excuse me. So I'm not sure. But they were talking about how they were getting sued as well because they would go on Google, get a particular print, and then change it maybe 5%, 10%, and then submit the uh, the drawing and that they had like a quota for the day. Like, oh, you have to submit 20 patterns or prints. And they did all the different prints to create scarcity. So when they had to drop, people would say, oh, you only have this print, you have to buy it now. There are only five. If you don't get it, you'll never see it again. So that was another aspect of it as well. Huh. No, I, I think it's a good episode. I think we there's a lot there from a legal perspective. And I think, I mean, my, MLMs are ubiquitous, right? At least 
women, I feel like, know about them or know someone that's participated in one, right? So, yeah, John, do you ha- do you know are men doing this and we're just not aware of it? Is it is there like a wasn't wasn't uh, or a wasn't former HUD secretary or... Ben Carson mixed up in one? <laughs> I'm going from memory here, but I seem to remember that being one of the many knocks against him. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> right, R.I.P. R.I.P. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my source material is pretty much just me at, like, 10 p.m. on Netflix, flipping through, like, is there a lawyer in this? Is there a lawyer in this? Is there a lawyer in That's me. Like, if someone's watching it on Netflix, they're going to want to hear about it from us, is how I look at it. Yeah. I haven't, I don't know if I've watched any great legal things lately, although I've been, you know, we're in Oscar seasons right now, and I try to watch all the Oscar movies, and this year there's 53. So Oscars are 13 days out. I have 13 movies to go and I won't be able to join you on Netflix until after we're on the other side of that for whatever the new legal thriller is on Netflix. We've talked about doing this as a show. We've talked about like somehow ranking legal movies or like shows or doing some kind of like everybody bring their favorite to the table type of thing. I feel like there's that's got legs. We could do it as long as we don't delve into ones that are like over talked about, you know, or like too lame. So we could take it on. Yeah. I would come pretty hardcore with some opinions in in my two rightest opinions in this area are best legal movie ever is my cousin Vinny. Best legal television show ever is original law and order. I'm with you on the second one. What's what, what are your guys? I'm going with Law and Order SVU. I will admit that I um, am a Christopher Maloney fan, so that is a part of the reason why I'm not going with the original. And for movie, I got to go with Legally Blonde. I will say, so I I do agree with you that SVU is the best iteration of Law and Order, but it's not as much of a law show as the original was. SVU is more about the investigation, so you're spending more time with the detectives than you are in the courtroom or with the DAs. Yeah. So fun fact about original Law & Order, actually, is that it was made like that because when Dick Wolf first made it, he didn't know if people were going to like the police part or the courtroom drama part, so they split it in half. So the first 30 minutes were the police, and then the second 30 minutes were the courtroom, so they could divide the show later if they needed to. That's really interesting. The one thing I would say negative, in my opinion, about Law and Order is that I think it gives the public a perception that your case is going to be done in a day or two days, a week. (laughs) And as a former prosecutor, so many times people would come and I'd use the Law and Order example, like, it's not like TV, unfortunately, where everything's handled in a you know a short month. It's going to be a wait. So still love Law and Order, but don't like it for that part. John, what's your fave? Um, movie, I would probably say A Few Good Men. You can't handle the I mean, the that, that courtroom scene's pretty epic. The, the cross-examination, the way he leads Jack Nicholson through it, that, that was, that's actually, like, good lawyering. Now, obviously, he's doing some things you can't do in a real courtroom, but the progression of the cross-examination, I thought, was really well-written. My husband would agree with you. That's one of his favorite movies and definitely his favorite courtroom movie. My favorites, I feel like I um, I resonate with the underdog lawyer movies and shows. So I like Aaron Brockovich, which isn't really like 
she's not the lawyer, but I like how they handle the case in that movie. I feel like it's really well done. I, I like the lawyer character in that movie. And I mean, it you know, being on the on the right side of a case and like it's got the inspiring element to it. And I also I'm very behind on it and I need to catch up. I feel like I stopped watching it right before my daughter was born. So that's telling you how many seasons behind I am because she's four now. But Better Call Saul, I thought, did a really good job in, like, seasons one and two of depicting the lawyer life, like, from the perspective of the, like, you know, the lawyer on the street struggling to make a buck and trying to be ethical, but struggling with all of those issues that come up. I thought those are two of my favorite depictions. I have actually never seen an episode of Better Call Saul, which is a little nuts because Breaking Bad is my favorite television show, and I practice in the area of legal ethics. But I missed like the first season or two. I was busy. And so I just decided I would wait till it was done before I watched it. And I think it's almost done, right? I don't think they're past two seasons um, because of the pandemic. And then the main character, I think that actor was sick for a while. So you have some time if you want to catch up. Some people say it's better than Breaking Bad. Interesting. I, I think one of the depictions about that show that I really like, Jen, is that I think that when we think about lawyers, we have like sort of a very ivory tower view of them. But I think Saul is like sort of the hustling lawyer in wherever America is the typical actual lawyer, right? Working hard to get cases, to survive, to, you know, run their business. And, and I think that most, I mean, we know most lawyers are, you know, either small firms or solo attorneys. And I think that's actually a little bit more like what a regular lawyer is, minus the murder and drug cartel, hopefully. <laughs> uh, maybe. In some some yeah. lawyers' cases, it may be true. But I think that's why both of those depictions are my favorite. Aaron Brockovich kind of shows that side of, like, it actually takes hard work to prove up a case— and it may take years and you may there may be obstacles. I mean, the Rob Balat Dark Waters movie was a similar kind of, you know, the the man against the machine type of concept, which I always like. But Better Call Saul, that's exactly why it resonates with me, because in the area that I practiced before coming to the CBA, which is, you know, divorce law, I saw lawyers like Saul. I, you know, in some respects, I kind of felt a kinship with that, like, level of having to hustle for business or whatever it was. And I think a lot of our members at the CBA probably connect with that. And that's one of the main flaws in the way lawyers are depicted in movies and TV shows is that, you know, it gives people the impression that the system is faster than it is, that lawyers make more money than they do, that it's then it's easier than it is, um, that it doesn't carry with it like the stress that it does. And I think mm-hmm. anytime there's a depiction of like how hard a lawyer actually works, it makes, you know, the audience empathize with and understand what actually goes into the profession, which I think can only be a good thing. I always say to my small firm clients, the thing you have to accept is that it's two full-time jobs, right? It's running a small business and everything that goes with running a small business and being a practicing attorney. And I, I think that's really glamorized in the media and, and people don't realize how tough that can be. I don't think that's, that's not just for small firms though. I mean, every partner in a big law firm, it's the same thing. You're your own small business. But it's a different thing, right? Um, you're not paying the light bill. I mean, you're not paying the light bill at Taft, no. are you done? But okay. in terms, in terms, you're, you're <laughs> not mean, handling some of the, the nuts and bolts of like the, the administration of it, granted, but in terms of like generating business and chasing that business and that kind of thing. Sure, sure. I take your point, but I think there's a lot of that administrative stuff that goes into running those small firms. And so especially if you have several employees, for example. So 
So I have like a quick hit list of other episode ideas that I want to just get out. I have three. Number one, political corruption in Illinois. I don't even know where I got that idea from. I just just came to me in a dream. Number two, <laughs> I have always wanted to do an episode on developing a niche practice or interviewing people that have really unique and interesting niche practices. You know, John and I both have fairly niche practices, but ours aren't very interesting. I think there are people out there that do really interesting things. And then number three, I recently read an interesting book by a Chicago-based author named Claire Hartfield about the Chicago race riot of 1919, which was something I had never heard about before. I don't know if you guys know, I actually, I'm a transplant from Michigan. I've only been here, uh, <laughs> I've only been here 16 years. So some of the Chicago history stuff is- You made me. it about 40 minutes in, and this is our first- <laughs> Mention. We should get like one of those like sound alarms that they have on radio stations, <laughs> like one of those like uh, what are those megaphones? Every time uh, Trish does it. <laughs> so just some things that are on my kind of uh, short list. What do you guys do? You think it's too early to get back to the Jesse Smollett topic? I mean, I, I know we just did the interview with Dan Webb, but it's so much in the news because, as you guys I'm sure have read, Kim Fox wrote an op-ed, a very defensive op-ed, you know, I think that's objectively fair to say, where she accused the court that prosecuted Smollett of being a kangaroo court um, and has uh, seems like been using proxies to accuse the court of racism in its decision to prosecute Smollett. You know, I, I think we all probably have opinions as to the, the fairness and veracity of those attacks on the court. But in the spirit of hearing the other side, maybe we can invite Kim Fox onto the podcast. Yeah, I'll actually take up the other side on that particular op-ed, too. I, I think it's a good idea to invite her, see if she's willing to talk about it. Normally, I would say a prosecutor would never talk about something like that on the air while it's ongoing. But I would have said a prosecutor will never bring right. an op-ed. For yeah, a she doesn't newspaper. seem to have a problem <laughs> talking about it. So I, I got a couple of press calls about that, and I, I didn't really end up commenting on it in the press. But it, it's pretty unusual to see a prosecutor write an op-ed like that. And, and the thing that people were interested in was, you know, did she cross the line um, in her op-ed? Like, did she attack the court in a way that like violates 8.2, you know, where it says we're not allowed to make false or reckless statements about the judiciary, right? I walked away, I read it very carefully. I walked away thinking that op-ed was very carefully Mm. written. My comment on that is going to be, I was surprised about the timing, to be honest with you. All the attention was on Jussie Smollett, Jussie Smollett being sentenced to 150 days. Uh, Nobody was talking about how the case was handled beforehand. And I was surprised by the timing that that the op-ed was written. So if we could get her on and and get more information about what her thought process was, why she decided now was the time to write the op-ed, I think that would be really interesting. Jen, what do you think? I'm all in. I I think it's... uh it's a story that keeps on going and hearing both sides is always in the interest of understanding the full picture of the story. So we should do it. Let's try and get her. Let's do it. And what about, weren't we going to get the, one of the Gacy defense lawyers? In? Oh yeah. Where, where do we stand with that, Jen? Yeah, that's, I mean, certainly um, the defense lawyer has agreed to come on. It's like with a lot of things with the show. I, I talk to people, I send emails, they agree, and then another hot topic kind of swoops in and takes precedence. So, 
Yeah, that's a good reminder to reach back out to him because given that it's our most popular episode of the show, I don't think our listeners would be bored to hear the other side of that story either. Um, I <laughs> the, feel like the side where John, John Wayne Gacy was totally framed. Misunderstood. You know, everyone hates clowns. There's this bias. Yeah. I will say clowns are the worst. <laughs> But arguably could be a very interesting side to the story. Like just understanding how to defend a case like that and like what went into that. Um, and, yeah. you know, like he- hearing from defense lawyers who have to come up with a strategy in those circumstances when you're really up against the odds, I feel like is interesting in and of itself. And of course, it's, you know, distinguished former judge Sam Amarante, I believe is how you pronounce it. So, yeah, hopefully he'll join us. We have a lot of hometown heroes that we could continue to tap into. And there's a long list of attorneys that have handled big cases within our membership alone. So that's probably a good place for us to take our next break. But I want to leave the audience with food for thought. Who killed more people, John Wayne Gacy or Ronald McDonald, which is the worst killer clown? We'll be right back with Stranger in Legal Fiction. Interested in getting more calls from potential clients? Consider joining the CBA's Lawyer Referral Service. The LRS has provided a valuable service to attorneys in the community for over 80 years by matching clients with attorneys in particular areas of law. The LRS receives 25,000 calls annually and makes over 10,000 referrals to attorneys each year. In the last two years alone, LRS attorneys have been referred several cases that have settled for an excess of $1 million. To learn more, visit www.lrs.com. Chicagobar.org. Are you looking to get away to someplace warm and sunny this winter? Join the Chicago Bar Association's CLE Abroad in Mexico. We're headed to Mexico City from March 24th to March 26th with an optional extension trip to beautiful San Miguel Allende from the 27th to the 29th. The trip will include CLE programming for attorneys, as well as tours, cultural experiences, and networking opportunities. Attorneys and their guests are welcome to attend. To learn more and register, visit chicagobar.org backslash Mexico 2024. We hope to see you there. And we're back with Stranger in Legal Fiction. Our audience knows the rules. We've done some research. We found some laws that are on the book somewhere, but probably shouldn't be because they're strange, outdated, whatever. We've made another one up, and we're going to quiz each other on who can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Jen, why don't you lead us off? All right, guys. I'm going to be doing a dairy theme today. I don't know why. I just, that's just what struck me. I don't know. Maybe I'm in the All right, come on. You're milking it. Let's go. I know. I'm milking it. Exactly. um, First law, in South Dakota, it is illegal to sleep in a cheese factory. Second law, in Wisconsin, it is illegal to buy, sell, or serve Butter substitutes, such as margarine, which is real, which is fake. Maggie? I would say one is real, two is fake. Trish? I think two is real and one is fake. I'm going to go one real, two fake. Well, the winners are John and Maggie. It is, in fact, illegal to sleep in a cheese factory in South Dakota. It's sounds more specific than the law actually is. If you read the ordinance, it really just has to do with living in sleeping quarters and how it's illegal to produce food in like a private home where you live and sleep. So from that perspective, it doesn't sound as 
wacky, but actually making margarine was at one time illegal. I was going to say, the reason I picked that is because I thought we had that one before. Doesn't it sound familiar, John? But I can't imagine how it would be legal. Yeah, it feels so true to Wisconsin is why it sounds real. (laughs) Because, you know, the dairy capital of the U.S. and, you know, butter. But then big margin came for them. Oh. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, it's still illegal to serve butter substitutes such as margarine in prisons. And it's illegal to serve it in a restaurant to a patron if they have not requested it. So you can't like sub in margarine for butter. They take it very seriously, long and short of it. So Trish, your guess was not unfounded. Yeah. Um, it was just outdated. Mm. My it must be nice to have so much time on your hands, Wisconsin. So it's at some point I'd like to do an episode about why eggs are in the dairy section of the grocery store. But Trish, let's go to yours. All right. Uh, I always wonder that as well. It doesn't make any sense. Doesn't but, make any um, sense. Okay. Number one, it is illegal to use a public bathroom in Singapore without flushing the toilet. Or number two, in the city of Carmel-by-the-Sea, California, it is illegal to carry an ice cream cone out of a store or ice cream shop. Jen, you look like you have an opinion on that one. Number one's the real law. Maggie? I agree. I agree. All right. Number one is currently the real law. It is uh, illegal. Singapore has a culture of being very clean. It is illegal to use public bathroom without flushing it on your way out. You can be fined up to $150 in Singapore currency, whatever that is. And uh, you can face jail time if you do not pay your fine for that. Um, do you remember that? Do you remember that guy in the '90s who like spit on a public sidewalk or something, and he was going to get oh, caned for it? Yeah, yeah, yes, I do remember that. I do. I forgot about that. Yeah, I do want to touch base about the Carmel by the Sea law, though. That was a law in Carmel by the Sea, California. Carmel, California. It was repealed by Mayor Clint Eastwood. Yes, that Clint Eastwood, (laughs) who ran for office in the Eight Ladies on a platform in part to repeal that law. He was elected in 1986. He served one term and he repealed the law. And now you can take your ice cream cones outside of the store in Carmel, California. God bless Maggie. Beats yelling at a chair. <laughs> that was not his <laughs> finest moment. Ugh. I wonder how much money he pumped into that campaign for that Carmel by the Sea. So for my portion, I'm going to go local Illinois as well as gutter. So in the state of Illinois, is it illegal to be an adulterer or is it illegal to urinate in public? Mm. I mean, two. I feel like Jen should know this. Two. Two's the Me? real law. Yeah, as an adulterer slash urinator in public. No. <laughs> no. Did, didn't this ever come up when you were practicing family law? Not on air, Trish. Don't refer <laughs> to the masses. My God. My Off husband, the record. He doesn't listen to this. Uh, no, it's got to be. It's got to be the urinating in public. I don't think it's illegal to be an adulterer. No, I don't, I don't think it's been illegal to be an adulterer Immoral, for yes, a few centuries. Well, you know. Let me just take up the case of adulterers. If you're not the married one, you're not the adulterer, right? You're only committing adultery if you're married. So I think a crime that said you can't commit adultery would be, well, first of all, pretty tough to enforce these days. But um, I think it's the urination law that you can't. 
And and if you can urinate in public in Illinois, I need to know about it very swiftly. <laughs> so I did some digging to catch you guys on this one. One of my former uh, prosecutor friends was from Australia and was obsessed with the fact that there still is an adultery law on the books in the state of Illinois, uh, 720 what? ILCS 5 backslash 11-35, still on the books, but not in force. You can commit adultery when you have intercourse with another person who is not your spouse, and it is in an open and notorious fashion. Of course, you have to know that the other person is married. And that could apply to the married person or unmarried person. Uh, public indecency, yeah, public indecency is on the books, um, but that is for uh, behaving in a lewd way for gratification. So while the city of mm-hmm. Chicago has urination ordinances, there's not a state of Illinois law against public urination. So continue to urinate in public, just not in the city of Chicago. Well done, counselor. That was a good one. All right, so so I've got one. It's not a choice. I just really want to talk about this law, and it's real. All right, you ready? Have you guys heard? Of, have you guys heard of the zone of death in Yellowstone National Park? Yeah, of course I have. Okay, yeah, no. Well, Trish, I would have thought trick. you of yeah. all people would, be, given your proclivity yeah. for murdering. So like, there's. What this, do you think this doesn't come up on the pods? There's this place called the Zone of Death, and it exists in a small portion of Yellowstone National Park that's in Idaho, right? So the the park straddles three states. I think Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho, and you could theoretically commit any major crime in this small part of the park without being criminally prosecuted for it. And here's why. The U.S. District Court for Wyoming is the only court with jurisdiction over parts of multiple states because Congress gave it special jurisdiction over Yellowstone Park. All right. And as we said, straddles that park straddles three states. And the federal government obviously has exclusive jurisdiction over the park because it's federal land, so state law doesn't come into play. Here's the wrinkle. The Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says that juries in federal criminal cases must be made up of citizens who are both from the district and the state where the crime was committed. But the Idaho portion of the park is completely uninhabited. I guess other portions of the park are inhabited. I didn't know that. That means that the government could never impanel a jury that complied with the Sixth Amendment. So if Trish, for example, were to theoretically kill her husband, Chris, she would want to do it in this part of Idaho. And then she could live stream it on Facebook and no one would be able to touch her for it. They could arrest her for it, but they wouldn't be able to prosecute her for it. John, that's ridiculous. Nobody uses Facebook live stream anymore. Okay. Yeah, I may be dating myself there. I don't know. What do you TikTok? Regulating committing murder over Facebook live or over the internet live. I feel like there's gotta be some that you might be stepping into some other kind of But but you'd want you'd want to document okay, maybe you don't live stream it, but you'd want to record it because you want to document carefully where you committed the crime, right? For sure. I don't think when you're committing murder, you want any documentation or evidence. In in the rest of the world, I agree with you. But in this little (laughs) sliver of Idaho, I think it's an exception. If I ever pull that off, I'll be available to the pod to be interviewed on it. So future episode. There we go. Yeah, I'm anti-documentation. No face, no case is (laughs) what I stand for. (laughs) (laughs) This coming from a former prosecutor. (laughs) And that's going to be our episode for today. I want to thank my co-hosts, 
Jen Byrne, Trish Rich, and Maggie Mendenhall Casey. This has been our first and possibly last mailbag episode. We'll see how the audience reacts to it. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. Our email address is podcast at chicagobar.org. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, iHeart, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. Bye.